the, the helpful, um, one of the helpful um, thoughts I have about all of this is that it's not, it's not, it's not just about information and all of that. It's about becoming. It's, it's the deepest change. But our hearts are made to hear that. Our minds were, a lot of our minds were told a different story. So a lot of people's difficulty with getting into this whole flow and vision <coughs> of this beautiful theology, beautiful spirituality, is, comes from our minds. And like, weren't we told differently in the past? <coughs> What's he saying now? Our hearts somehow recognize the truth of these things. And that isn't the problem. The problem is trying to do a bit of reading and a bit of talking and listening to people so as to be really comfortably at home with all of this, to make it like second nature to yourself, because this is the good news. This is really what does, um, what does lift us. I mean, we're all struggling a bit with our thinking and negative negativity and sometimes depression and sometimes despair, um, either like one or two or the four of us in this room would be struggling with, that, with this, and there's all kinds of uh, happiness apps and, um, and uh, programs and books and <clears throat> so on, and they're all useful. But I just think that, that we have to reach a bit something deeper, and I would call that the spiritual, to enable us to thoroughly be transformed. You know, that actually sounds like a, a, a plug for the, for the healing habit, uh, which is there. And thank you for letting me look at those things. And um, as regarding the books last year, they all cleared off the table in no time. So I was taking it thinking, you know, it's because, it's because I've said good things in it through the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't. They were just so handy as a cheapish uh, Christmas present. LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure if anybody has read it, but people like it to look at it and so on. So um, again, could I just say to stay with it for these, uh, just for these two more sessions, um, because certainly I, I wouldn't be bothering getting up at five this morning if it was just to, um, if it was just to talk about something I didn't really believe in. It's just because I, I really have a passion for this. I think this is the key. Uh, to the future of a church which, was, which will be radically different to the way it is now, the Roman Catholic institution, I mean, and but more than that, our own lives and the power of our thinking and going a bit deeper and giving a meaning to suffering. That's a huge Christian secret. The minute we, the minute we can give some kind of meaning to our depression or some kind of meaning uh, to our memories of bad things we did or some kind of meaning to what people might be doing or saying to us now, the whole scenario changes. We're no longer frightened of it. In fact, we see it, as they say, turning the old stumbling blocks into stepping stones. There's no other way of growing except out of our hurt and out of our um, disappointments and out of our failures and out of our sins. There's, there is no other way of growing and being healed and having some of that wisdom and presence until we actually see that what we want to most avoid is actually our greatest gift. That's why we say things that sometimes we don't understand, like embracing the wound, like Jesus did, um, you know, 
surrendering to the pain of our own bodies, the pain of our lives, the pain of the world, because that, that integration with pain and darkness is somehow the only place that salvation and redemption and the light can get in. Which, which, which brings me um, to Uh, to Mr. Cohen, um, l let me, let me. Um, in my excitement this morning at five o'clock, I forgot to bring the CD of him singing that, um, which some of you, he is safe enough to introduce to a group of us. Like we haven't too many teenagers here, so a lot of us would be familiar with uh, <coughs> with old Leonard Cohen, um, and and just, okay. Let me try to to handle. Um, in the very bottom of the line, you can, yeah. What I had just said there was, in our darkness, in our sinfulness, in our despair sometimes, in what we fear most, that is the golden patch in which uh, the flowers grow for our minds and for our hearts. Um, there's no, in nature, there's no exception to that. And old Andrew Cohen, in uh, in his uh, in in his in his lyrics, he 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 says it there. The very you probably you can't see it even if you are sitting in the front row, but he says, "Ring out the bells that still can ring. Forget your holy offering." You know, if from being a Buddhist, he would have realized that all oh, a lot of the palaver we do as Catholics, with which with whom he had a a, a connection as well. You know, it's pointless, as though God was out there somewhere, and we were trying to make God love us more, or forgive us for something, or change something. There's no God out there, as Pope Francis said. There's no Catholic God out there. Um, God is the deepest presence moving us from within. So, ring out the bells that still can ring. Uh, forget your holy offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's the bottom line there. You know it. You probably know it, don't you? That fa he's famous for that line. There's a crack in everything. That, like the good, there's a good Friday in everything. There's a cross, a crucifixion in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how your Easter Sunday comes. That's how the chicken comes out of the cracked shell. That's how, that's how we try to clamber out of the mess of our lives. So it's, it's, it's a wisdom. And... and uh, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. Um, I'm sorry because, as I say, I haven't the old uh, CD with me, but but you'll Google him and you'll get a thousand pages of about the man. I'll mention this tiny bit in a moment. Um, so try to hold some of these things together. I'll tell you why I've brought him into the story. But first of all, uh, to settle ourselves with that lovely prayer by John Moriarty, a neighbor of ours down in the south west of Ireland um, died a few years ago. Wonderful writer, wonderful speaker, layman. And uh, he wrote this for his funeral. <coughs> and some people say it every morning. And this is how it goes. And you've heard me saying it before, many of you. Um, bright mornings bring the mountains to my d doorstep. Calm nights give the rivers their say. 
Some evenings the wind puts his hand on my shoulders. I stop thinking. I leave what I'm doing and I go the soul's way. Bright mornings bring the mountains to my doorstep. I would like to think that that is, you know, when we are alive in the Holy Spirit, the mountains of wisdom and the mountains of challenge <coughs> are brought right into our consciousness. Calm nights give the rivers their say. When we are in contemplation in a quiet place, then the rivers of love and the rivers of wisdom, the rivers of delight, <coughs> we, they flow in us. Some evenings the wind puts his hand on my shoulders. That could be the touch of the Holy Spirit. I stop thinking, which is what we try to do when we contemplate, when we meditate, when we're in a still place. I stop what I'm doing. as a time for contemplative action. This is the time for contemplative silence, stillness. I leave what I'm doing and I go the soul's way, the mystic's way, the inner way, the inner healing way. I go the soul's way. I go that way and I know in my heart and soul that's the way to God. So, <coughs> talking about um, uh, still hanging on to that notion of depth and surface and shallowness in, in the way, I was just thinking, who, who would I think, who would come to my mind, I was thinking uh, last week, of somebody who, who seemed to have depth. And again, sometimes I think we, you know, we, we reach maybe for the established saints and for what the church says, and you know, you feel they must be at least Christian before they, before the, you could say they're deep. Um, but so I thought of your man here, Leonard Cohen, and um, his life and his misfortunes, and his fortunes, and his gifts. Uh, born in Montreal, um, Canadian Jew. And then uh, somebody fleeced him of all his money, uh, lots of affairs, and then joined the Buddhists for four or five years, um, then came back, um, decades ticking by, and then had another go to regain his money, I think, and he did his world tour, and everywhere he went, of course, he was acclaimed. And I was just thinking, there must be something about him simply because he is so loved, is just so loved. And I was thinking, why is he loved? Why is he so loved? I suppose I was thinking of him maybe compared to a more other you know, brighter stars, but who shine for a lot less than his 82 years. Um, and, and you're just his presence. There was a graciousness about him. There was something lovely about him. I thought his little black hat and you know, and he, he, he'd bow to people, and, um, um, and it was all, of course, a lot of it would have been not put on, but I mean, like being aware of being on a stage in front of lots of people, but I just thought he was full of grace. Um, and, and, and then, and like with the lyrics, the beautiful lyrics, sometimes try to look at the ones that you've never heard of before, um, and then, and then that other lovely one, like his efforts to be free. He was trying to be free, I think, of all the things that would box him in, including his own Judaism and Buddhism. Like we are trying to be free of very often the rigor and the frames and the core beliefs we, 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 that were driven into us. 
and all about God and going to confession and all of that stuff. It's the deacons to get rid of those. It's really difficult to clear our minds and our hearts for a new way of being and a new way of seeing and a new way of thinking. It's hard for us to do that when, when, when they were etched into our souls, when we were small and vulnerable. That's why it's often called, or sometimes called, spiritual abuse. Anyway, so he wanted to be free, and of course the, he and Marianne, his, his probably faithful, um, most faithful companion, came up with, with this, like a bird in a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir, I have tried in my way to be free, like a worm on the hook, like a knight from some old-fashioned book, I have saved all my ribbons for thee. So again, why? You see, that spoke to something in all of us that longs to be free. That spoke to people in, when he's, in, again, again, because we were told that, you know, this, that our bodies and our senses and our sexuality and all that was because of the fall. Um, and nobody told us they were God's greatest gifts to us, made in God's image, God at God's more artistic beauty. And we were saying, no, all of these are a source of sin. All of these have come from sin. All of these are leading to sin. Nobody said, no, no. That's not the meaning of the fall. There wasn't a fall. Um, um, these are God's gifts to us. Um, so, so we long for that, to be free. Jesus was a liberator. And so that song emerged from his examples. And people love him for that because all our hearts are aching somehow uh, to be free. And probably to be free mostly of fear. Fear is probably the greatest blockage to that vision I'm talking about. And if you find any resistance in yourself to it, and maybe lots of you do, and it's very important that you do, and if you do, it's a good thing, but rather than like attacking me over it and so on, like just to see where is this resistance coming from? Why are you, why are you stepping back from it and saying, I don't think I like that or whatever, and very often it would be from fear. So they say fear is, Pope Francis is very clear on that as well, that, our, that fear is the enemy of freedom. Free, fear is what keeps us shackled and keeps us from um, being creative, from using our imagination, from not worrying about what people think of us, as fear stops us using our voice. And I would say women are discovering that uh, in a very kind of fruitful way. And if there's time at the end of this talk, I'll just mention the regrets people have when they're dying. Came across a review of a book written by a nurse in Australia about people who were terminally ill, and she picked up from them what, they, what the regrets they had just before they died. And they're very interesting, those regrets. The only reason I would mention them would be to make sure that we don't have those regrets. One of those regrets, the greatest for me would be if I had any lucid moments before I died, uh, would be a great regret for, for being too afraid to say what I believe. 
a great regret for not having risked seeing the little glimpses of what I think the truth is based on reading and studying and so on. I would just, I think, die very unhappily if I, if I had not said these things or not written these things because um, I thought somebody might write to the bishop or that I might uh, um, be unpopular or something. Pathetic. But I'm trying my best not to have that regret when I die. So there he is. Um, that's just two, two of words. So he, I thought, would, would be like a deep person. And then uh, an example of who would I feel would have been lived a shallow life. Now, this is very dangerous ground to say that about anybody. But this person has no name, uh, but has been in the paper a few times at the beginning of this year, and known only as C, capital C, in inverted commas. And the reason she was in the paper um, before last Christmas and after Christmas was that she was given uh, an unusual uh, permission by the government, um, uh, which is rarely offered, um, to, for all her life, her life keeping, res restoring medication and food and so on to be cancelled. I don't know the legal ins and outs of it, but it wasn't just like um, when there's no hope, pressing the switch or something or cutting off. But, but she was, two things, she was allowed uh, to end her life that way. She was about 50, 52. And secondly, that her name would never be revealed. And it never has. So why do I think it was a sh a, a, an example of a really sad but superficial life was the reasons she gave for wanting to end her life <coughs> was threefold. <coughs> she said all her life she lived for possessions <coughs> and money, for her attractiveness and her beauty, and for her affairs uh, with men. Now, like, they're very clear-cut, and, and to some extent, I suppose we can all identify with some of them. Um, and that's all. She, she didn't want grandchildren, um, because she didn't want to be called grandma, and so on and so forth. She didn't take medication, because it would affect her physique, and so on. So, so it was all kind of shocking, and the way it read that she had nothing, nothing, nothing left to fall back on when the winter time came. No family, no interest, no hobby, no um, time to be quiet, um, nothing. She begged, short of suicide, <coughs> um, to, to, to end it all. And then the Times paper, which was the one that published the story that I, as I read it, <coughs> they gave a little, a little reflection on it, saying that, you know, before we judge the lady, uh, to look at our own lives and see, is it only a question of degree on her part? That, you know, we all want possessions. We all want uh, <coughs> to have good relationships. And we all want to look well. And like how many, how many of us men and women 
look at the old Sunday <coughs> magazine supplements, you know, about new this and new that and new clothes and new makeup and so on, and fine. But I suppose the paper was saying, if you begin to believe it completely, you know, that you're not really human or you're not really attractive until you, etc., etc., uh, then, then one can be in big trouble, like she was. And that was another way I thought I'd look at depth and uh, incarnation. That when we do believe that our bodies are quite beautiful, no matter what um, shape or size they are, or whatever age, um, and that life is just a pure gift from God, and that somehow this life isn't the end, there'll be more curious and amazing things that we haven't a clue about um, after we die with God's help. And um, um, that we just see things, we see the beauty in things. So her level of passion and interest and reasons for living, you'd have to say were a bit shallow. Like she, yeah. Like Leonard Cohen would have, would have said that for him, that we are born to love and to be loved, to know and to be known, and he would have made a really good job of that, I think. Like to know him is to love him without overdoing the whole thing. Um, and so on. And she didn't seem to have that awareness and, um, and inner vision and inner drive and inner satisfaction. And then another person came into my mind, um, a poet, Ronald Carver. A very short poem. And I'll read it so that, because I'm sure some of you were. <coughs> and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so. Even so, probably being in spite of and the trouble, <coughs> the suffering, the pain, the weakness, the falseness, um, the sin, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. Like the yeah, I don't know, I can only speak for myself. But that kind, of, um, <coughs> that, that kind of understanding of life, to know something about what love is, and to see things especially in a loving way. I'm always a bit surprised when people like, um, you know, famous people that we admire, that I admire, and sometimes they, they seem to want to stay alive, to stay alive for a long time. And more times they kind of say that they're ready. You know, I'm ready. And came across this um, little bit again. Um, excuse me. Again from, um, from um, Richard Rohr. He says, there is a certain fear of death that comes from not having lived yet. 
I had to face death myself, he said, three times, um, with different experiences of cancer. I don't think I was terribly afraid of death each time, even though I knew it might be near, because I knew that I had already lived. Now here's a celibate, who wouldn't a family or to say that about. Once you know that you have touched upon the great mystery itself, you are not so afraid of death. Now what does he mean by that? Just like think about that a bit. Once you feel you have touched on the mystery, once you feel you have seen something, the mystery being God involved with us, then you're not so afraid of death as maybe you once were. But there is a fear of the unlived life. There is a fear that we haven't lived. That to die feeling you haven't lived could be a great regret, really. Something in us says, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't felt it yet. I haven't done it yet. Some realization, some new awakening, some awareness, something that really deeply transforms us deeply in its depth. This is the kind of thing I'm struggling with today and with you. I haven't experienced the stream of life within me yet. You see, you can be as religious as can be. You can be top of the pops of the religious pops in the, in the parish. You know, the priest is always relying on you and you're up there around the sanctuary um, uh, with great pride and, um, and you do lots of good things. But your heart isn't touched. Many would say the more religious you are, the less compassionate you are. If, if all your understanding of religion is like the external rituals, external beliefs, the external doctrines, loads of us in the hierarchy as priests and being compulsorily celibate, we really don't have that humanity that I'm talking about. Like no wonder to say the more human you are, the more divine you are. But very often we're the least spiritual human of the, of the parishes we are in. And so people would say, I haven't touched the real, the good, the true, the beautiful, uh, all of which we were created for. And I'm just saying that Advent, Incarnation, Christmas, days like today are chances of going to that deeper place and being truly transformed, including the body and our senses. When we know we have experienced the stream of life, we will be able to lie on our deathbed like Francis and say, welcome, Sister Death. I'm not afraid to let go of life now because I have life, because I am life. I know life is somehow eternal and another form of life is waiting for me. So lots of people have died um, like that. Now, um, another way of putting all of this is, um, is like all kinds of words for it, the real me and the not real me, the Christ child in me, 
um, the small self, the big self, the false self, the true self, all these are bandied around and from the beginning of time um, 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 but by all kinds of thinkers, Christian or not, religious or not. Um, and uh, just a small example here. So all our, so all our efforts are to be true to ourselves and true to God within us. That's what we're after. To be authentic, uh, to be very courageous, to have confidence. And Saint Therese speaks beautifully about confidence. It's a lovely virtue, I think. Courage would be my favorite one, being acquainted with fear like I am. Uh, but confidence is, is a subtler kind of way. Uh, it doesn't depend on your own success, doesn't depend on how well you're prepared, doesn't um, depend on those outer things. Confidence is an inner trust, somehow. Um, um, that truth will flow, that love will flow, that compassion will flow somehow in you and through you, um, and that God's voice will be heard through you. She said, like two virtues she was after. Uh, one was thankfulness, to be thankful. Like my mother was always thankful, I think. I never heard her complaining or, um, you know, or, or chastising God. And like we had Joseph <coughs> who had Down syndrome in the family. And, you know, there's always a, about those beautiful, innocent people, there's always kind of a shadow around maybe the family or neighbors. I don't know. But of course, we all love Joseph uh, to the utmost. But I never heard her. Um, all was grateful, grateful for everything. Every morning, every breath, um, every day, all that she did, laps once. I remember really, really bad winter's day, and this poor raggedy man came to the door and uh, wanted something to eat. So my mother made a, a nice big sandwich for him and gave it to him at the door. And she said, here, here you are, my good man on this bad day. So he said, thank you, ma'am. And he turned away. And then he turned back and he said, of course you know, ma'am, there's no such thing as a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> we might not agree about that, but we can get his drift. And, and him saying it, who was out in the middle of it. So, so that, like what we, I suppose what we're after, really, all the stuff I'm trying to say this morning could be summed up in the whole point of creation, incarnation. Christianity could be summed up by saying, to be who you are, to be yourself. Be a little bit careful when you say that to somebody. Oh, you'll do fine. Just be yourself. Because it takes a lifetime and a half to be yourself. You know, we have so many cloaks and disguises and masks and fears and anxieties and uh, and f and resentments and 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 revenge and so on it's very hard to be yourself but that's more or less the only calling we have including worshiping god including doing all the good things including it's to be yourself at the heart of it all 
And again, Richard Rohr says, I think the one and single purpose of religion is to lead you to an experience of your real, genuine, true self in God. Every sacrament, every Bible, every church service, every song, every doctrine, every bit of priesthood or ceremony or liturgy is, as far as I'm concerned, for one purpose, to allow you to experience what your true self is like, who you are in God, and who God is in you. And you might say, but what about all the talk of praying and getting your sins forgiven and being saved and worshipping God? And the reply would be, that's what it is. You're redeemed, you're saved, you're worshipping God by being your true self because you're made in God's image. And just as any kind of decent parents, all they want is that their children will not grow up to be clones of themselves or to be like the passing stars of stage and screen. Loving parents want them to be delighted with being themselves. And like when, you, when you follow that road in your thinking and you read what, what true spiritual writers have said and what the mystics have said and what good theology is saying and what the heroines and heroes of our lives are saying, that's what they're saying. It isn't just something made up or some kind of new age stuff. That's the raw flesh, visceral reality of a God whose energy created the huge cosmos created every single tiny aspect of our own lives. I mean, it does, first of all, it can be confusing, then it can be really surprising, and then it can take your breath away. When you think of all you've missed all your life, <laughs> um, until someday, for some reason, that within us, which, which never leaves us, puts his hand up, I said, are you listening to this? Are you awake? Do you realize this? And of course we do. We recognize what's good for us. That leads me on just to give um, another tiny uh, example of the true and the false self. The false self is often a misnomer. It isn't the false self. It's like the inadequate, unfinished, superficial um, self as opposed to the authentic with the ring and the resonance of the truth and the beauty about it. Your false self is who you think you are. Most of the time, who you think you are. The smaller self that you protect through your body image, your job, your education, your clothes, your money, your car, your sexual identity, your success, your opinions, your principles, the respect you work so hard to be held in, your good name. Almost everything you would think to describe yourself is probably you're describing the false, inconsequential, unsatisfying self. Just think about it. If you were asked <coughs> uh, who you really were, you know, you could give a list of the superficial things. You mightn't be too fast on or nobody could be, I think, 
on what are the deeper aspects of your life that make you particularly you. What unique characteristic or trait or grace or blessing uh, or dream uh, makes you particularly yourself. All these are the trappings of the ego that we all use to get us through an ordinary day. A lot of them are necessary. Things we do, uh, things we have to do to keep the world going, to keep our community going, to keep our household going. But this whole spiritual thr thrust is, is that all there is? Is there, an, is, is there not a deeper well from which springs a beautiful sweet water that, that, that colors and brings vitality and vibrancy into, into all life. We'll keep losing it, of course. The key is to know how to regain it. Ideally, that's what a friend is for. Ideally, that's what meditation is about. Ideally, that's why we have a church, because we forget. Ideally, that's what the sacraments are, to keep reminding us because we forget so easily. Let me start, uh, finish, and then, um, and then like the real self, again, people like Thomas Merton and those, they try to say to us, your real self cannot be damaged. It was there almost before you were born. It was what God placed in you, what God kissed, caressed, and placed safely within you and it's always in you. It can, maybe it is some form of what we call the soul, but it sounds much more exciting in the way these mystics put it. Um, Thomas Merton said, it's a light that we all carry. Uh, in a sense, we're all walking around, shining like the sun. Um, sometimes we see it as if we suddenly saw the secret beauty of people's hearts the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only we could all see others as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would all fall down and worship each other. So that whole notion of beauty as well as depth uh, is, is written through all of these things I'm saying. The regrets, I'll just mention one or two of them because it's rushing like mad now. Uh, what she noticed, people at the point of dying were saying and um, regretting, not not having had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life expected of me by others. Regretting my unfulfilled dreams, my unlived life, my deeper self. A guilt about not having yet, of having yet really lived. Not having the courage to express my feelings more often my mediocre existence. And all the, the, the five main ones um, 
touched on that, for not letting myself live a happier life. I did not know that happiness was a choice, and so stayed stuck in old patterns of attitudes and habits of thought and fighting needless battles. In passing, could I just say, try to think as well about choice. That alone can change your life, rather than surrender and wallow into the hurt, into the blaming, into the criticizing, into the, into the habit of, um, of, of um, being unfulfilled. Um, uh, rather than that, to choose to go the way of light, the way of what, what Pope Francis calls magnanimity, go the way of bigness, to go the way of not carrying the trivial, the way of letting go of what doesn't really matter, and not to be wasting precious energy in a negative, empty way. And they were, they, they were just some of the regrets that we all would have a little of, but I'm saying it now, not in any depressive way, but just that we, with Advent, this whole days and nights and mornings and prayers and, um, and Sundays of growing and deepening, that we just begin to, to make sure we won't be carrying needless guilt, needless, um, uh, needless fear of these things. I think I'd better, <coughs> better leave it at that because I'd be. Uh, so, just for a moment, then I just see what maybe emerges from your mind or your heart from this morning or something completely different that the Holy Spirit is nudging you about, uh, something you may want to say a word about after lunch. <coughs> 